0: Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf and today we're picking up just exactly where we left off on the morning of April 28th. The Nazi regime is in its death throes. The Fuhrer bunker is all but unguarded. The central district of Berlin, the heart of fascism in the modern world, is under direct assault. Tens of thousands of diehard fascists wait to greet death with no illusions of victory, thinking only a bit of resistance. For its own sake, they know what's coming. The buildings are literally disintegrating around the men fighting in the streets. The civilians huddle together like our primordial ancestors, frightened and confused by a world they don't control. Bodies unburied lie everywhere, some dismembered, some impregnated into concrete, some half buried in rubble, some surreally peaceful, all of them stinking and bloating. The birds try to eat the dead, but they keep getting driven off by the incessant glittering shrapnel spinning through the air and the terrible sounds of thousands of heavy guns Continuously firing. Teenage girls cry for a lost innocence that will never return, their snot filtered sobbing barely registering to the numb victims piling into the corner of basements, desperate for safety in a metropolis coming apart at the seams. German officers look in the mirror for one last time and mumble, It's all come to this, before the razor slits the white skin, sending rivulets of streaming red down their pale forearms. In the heart, Of those who brag most about order, disorder reigns supreme. Every man is like a second serpent in the Garden of Eden, doing what seems right in his own eyes. Here is a real picture of anarchy, mass looting, mass rape, mass death, a god a death of the West. But first, I want to thank Yorgos from Hobart, Australia, along with Jim from Parts Unknown for buying us around. I also want to thank Mark from Birmingham for the awesome email and the donation. If you'd like to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. But now, close your eyes and picture a handsome teenage boy lying in a rubble-filled street, crumbling townhomes, dominoing down both sides of the avenue. The boy is wearing ill-fitting olive clothing. It's much too big for him. He's just laying there. You slowly walk over to him. Hey, kid, wake up, you say. The kid doesn't move. His bony hands are holding a small slip of tattered paper. Then you see his face, lockjaw has set in, rigor mortis, stiffening arms and face, the mouth grimacing in pain, blue eyes staring vacantly at the sky, the white flesh has turned gray and dirty, then the smell slaps, your nostrils makes you involuntarily gag, but there is something you need to do. You reach for the little slip of paper in the bored stiff fingers, opening it you read, forgive me mother, I won't be coming home. Looking at the preteen, not more than 14 years old, what would you say? Suddenly you're in charge of his eulogy. Was he brave? Yes, he must have been. He died fighting. The empty Panzerfaust canister next to his corpse testifies to that, as does the smoking tank 13 feet away. So much belief, so much willing sacrifice embodied in that one little rotting corpse. What can you say, speck of dust, to justify or understand or make sense of how this boy came to be bloating in the spring sun? What is the answer? What are the right words? That's what I've been doing for nine episodes now. I'm standing next to the victims, next to the crumbling buildings, next to the swinging corpses, pendulating on their hanging ropes. I see them when I close my eyes, my nostrils, imagine the terrible scent, the treasures of German culture, disintegrating in fire and steel. None more important than the German women and children themselves. My words are not good enough to convey this tragedy. These words are not good enough. I give myself one star. But since there is no one else, and God has laid this burden on me, I step to the mic, and this is what I say. At dawn on April 28th, Jean-Marie Croissille was summoned to his commanding officer's temporary headquarters in an apartment. The Major explained the Russians were using a two-story high railroad track to infiltrate soldiers into the buildings surrounding German strongpoints in their sector. Because of this, many of the German strongholds in the government district were totally exposed. The major solution was to send Jean-Marie and his 16 men squad to find a ladder, climb up to the exposed train bridge, drive off any Russian troops on the bridge, and then clear the houses near the major sector that abutted the two-story high railroad bridge. The whole time, Jean-Marie and his troops will be totally exposed with little or no cover. The major might as well have ordered Jean-Marie to blow his own brains out. Kwasil knew the odds were against him and his men. But orders are orders, and he sent out a few of his troops to find a ladder. They returned with one that was about 13 feet tall. The railroad bridge was 32 feet tall. That's 10 meters for you guys listening in Europe. Oh well, thought Jean-Marie, we'll just have to make it work. Kwasil describes what happened next like this, quote, We started running for the corner near the bridge when I was suddenly punched by an invisible heavyweight boxer in my stomach. The next thing I knew, I was up in the clouds flying. I say to myself, that's it, I'm dead. But it wasn't that unpleasant at all. I see myself lying, curled up on the sidewalk among the rubble and broken glass. I am alone. I call for help. Two of my men come to save me. As soon as they touch me, I start screaming because I am feeling pain everywhere, all over my body. I'm transported to a cellar where my comrades put a bandage on my head because that's where I have a wound on the right side. Every square inch of my body hurts, but I don't feel anything in my head even though that's where I'm wounded. I feel curiously numb. My limbs are heavy, difficult to move. I can't stand up. I'm being taken away. I never found out exactly what happened to the rest of my comrades. I'm taken to a clinic that's being evacuated before the Russians arrive to put a bullet into all of us. I'm so tired that despite the noise of the approaching battle and the commotion that surrounds me, I fall asleep. I'm awakened by Russian soldiers who search me, take and destroy everything I have, such as papers, military booklets, money, and photos. They tear everything up, sneering at me as they do it. I just blankly watch them as blank and as empty as a used cartridge shell. The clinic is in flames around me. I nod. Yes, this is how it should be. This is about what I expected to happen. I go back to sleep. I vaguely feel that I'm being transported. I keep sleeping. When I finally wake up, I'm lying on a table in the middle of a hair salon. There near me is a German soldier wounded in the leg. The ceiling of the shop has a canopy through which gigantic flames can be seen licking the air. It is scorching hot. The store catches fire. Of course it does. Two of us make our way outside, helping each other limp to safety. The streets are teeming with Soviet soldiers busy searching houses and looting. They ransack and destroy what they cannot take away. I nod again. Yes, of course. I keep half thinking I'm going to catch a bullet in the back of my neck. At that moment, in that atmosphere, crushed by our defeat, it would have been easy for us all just to die. During the battle, although without illusions about the end of this adventure, we didn't have time to think about it. We just fought on, like machines. And also, you have to have lived those moments to know how exhilarating it is to fight for a lost cause when there are only a few thousand of us in battle alone against the united armies of the entire world. Once the fight finished, all being irretrievably lost, of course, we found ourselves without hope and without any desire for anything. It was a state of mind that disappeared after a few days, and since you're listening to this, you know I survived. There were many who did not. End quote. A few hundred yards away from the crestfallen Jean-Marie, on the morning of April 28th, Helmut Altner, a teenager-slash-soldier, was sleeping on the floor of a barracks room. It was still dark outside. For the past two weeks, he had walked almost 200 miles, seen most of his boyhood friends liquidated into melting pizza cheese, and engaged in innumerable and continuous firefights with the Russians. Finally, he was able to catch a little sleep, a little relief from the ongoing nightmare, when the door burst open and someone started screeching, The Russians are here! Get up! Get up! Altner was transformed into a suddenly disturbed forest hare, leaping into the air as a wild dog jaws snapping at his hind legs comes bounding for him. Helmet picks up the story like this quote. I throw on my greatcoat, grab a rifle and a few belts of ammunition and dived outside. The night was woken up to frightening activity. The thundering of guns and exploding shells with the roaring of collapsing walls, the splintering of window panes and the hammering of machine gun fire has become one single noise that paralyzes the senses and makes one's eardrums vibrate. The din has become a constant thunder above which it is almost impossible to distinguish the individual gunshots and explosions. It penetrates and consumes one... Like an inevitable disaster, the earth shakes until one expects it to open up at any moment and swallow everything up into darkness. Figures running across the square show up like ghosts whenever an exploding shell spreads its bright flash of light for a few seconds. I stand in the cellar entrance, waiting for some troops to attach myself to. Then some figures dash by, racing towards the barrack gates, so I run with them. Nobody knows what's really happening, where the enemy is, or in what strength he is attacking us with. Fire's coming from all sides and is closing in on the barracks. In the distance, one can see the fire of tank guns. The shells explode in the walls above our heads, knocking down trees and sending splinters, whistling through the air, stabbing into flesh and webbing. The tanks are rolling slowly forward with frightening regularity. Tongues of fire licking the night. We fire like mad at the tanks to prevent any accompanying infantry advancing then there is a sudden explosion in the wall above showering us with bits of stone i clasp my head for i have no steel helmet on only my field cap there is no point in staying here any longer the russian tanks will be here within minutes a tank destroyer team remains behind as we run across the street lost children with total terror carved in their beautiful faces are running around looking for their parents. A few dead struck down by falling masonry or killed by artillery splinters are lying around. Some wounded are making their way back to find shelter in the barrack block cellars. The night is by no means over. Only the lightning flashes of the guns and the exploding shells and the dazzling streams of fire from tracer bullets rip through the darkness shots are whipping through the streets you can see the muzzle flashes and hear the roaring afterwards as the shells strike everywhere ripping the earth up into a field of craters then we split up among the individual foxholes once used for training recruits firing into the night in front of us not knowing where the enemy even is he could appear any moment and jump into our trenches somebody goes past crouch down advance 100 meters and occupy the trench We jump out of our holes and race forward, firing as we go. We fall into foxholes and over tripwires, gathering ourselves up again, and at last reach the trench. We let ourselves fall into it and resume firing. There's no letting up. It is really desperate. When one has to shoot, not knowing where the enemy even is, the trench is filled with Germans. We are the front line for the entire empire. The night gradually lifts its veil trees and bushes stand out sharper the infantry fire has increased and is hitting the sand in front of our trench works bursts of tracer bullets come from in front of the barracks to strike the road embankment suddenly the sound of a tank tears through the dawn and a dark colossus runs up the road and stops by the bushes we have thrown ourselves down waiting for the end then it is suddenly silent even the enemy's infantry fire has stopped we stick our heads above the parapet and recoil the tank is standing quite close to the trench like a dark monster only holding its breath before it devours us all then our eyes seem bewitched as the turret hatch opens and a head appears don't shoot suddenly sounds through the silence and we hold our breath only the distant roaring of explosions somewhere sounds like thunder in the wings i think it may be a german tank but i must have been wrong it can only be russian then it drops in the silence comrades give yourselves up There's no point in fighting on. The Russians outnumber you. The barracks are completely surrounded. Run across and report to the Russian troops at the field. You will be treated well, and you will be able to go home as soon as hostilities are over. Soldiers, there is no point anymore. Do you want to lose your lives in the last hours of a war already lost? Then the hatch slams shut. The engine roars into life, and the tank clanks away, a white cloth fluttering behind like a flag. Soldiers are jumping out of the trench and running across the field to disappear between the bushes and then scramble up the hill to the road where they vanish between the mostly shot-up weekend homes. More and more are going, running across like an avalanche, civilians and soldiers from the emergency companies. From the distance comes a voice. Soldiers, give yourselves up! There's no point anymore! Sergeant Ritten comes along with a chalk-white face, his blue eyes flashing with anger. His hatred seems otherworldly. The swine! The swine! He forces through his clenched teeth and holds a pistol in front of our faces. Are you thinking of running over, huh? Then you would get a bullet faster than you would have gotten over. He orders us to fire at the deserters. I, too, would like to disappear, turn my back on everything, and hide myself somewhere to wait until it's all over. The oath that binds me means nothing anymore. I feel myself released from it since it became clear what sort of game was being played with our bodies. But there's something else that holds me back despite everything. The words obedience and duty are so deeply burned into our hearts they smolder on like a small spark to hold us back. We simply cannot find a way out of the maze of feelings, out of the conflict between our upbringing and the common sense that comes to us in terms that we do not even recognize as they contradict everything that we have been taught in our entire lives, End quote. I want to stop right here. Here's a teenage boy, barely 17, and because of his indoctrination, he holds the line in a hopeless military situation after fighting over two weeks with little food, little sleep, and little training, yet he held the damn line anyway. Now I want to talk to the millions of social workers sucking on the taxes of the West and the policy makers sucking on the marrow of the West. You say you're going to solve crime through generous policies, and yet the crime rate increases. You say you're going to solve the educational problems of our countries, and yet our students' performance continues its decline. You say you're going to solve the homeless crisis, but when I walk the streets of Paris and Montreal, I see the homeless literally falling out of the bridges. You say you're going to make every individual more free, but all you do is increase the dependence clinging barnacle-like to you, justifying your position. I don't want to hurt you or mistreat you you do not mistake me, I only want to point out that if these teenagers in Germany could be raised to fight and even asked to fight in such horrible conditions, then the students of the West could easily be made to live in peace with those around them and score well on tests. You, not the students, are the problem. You are enabling their delinquency. You are enabling access to pornography and obscene video games, allowing it to stream into their brains continuously. You make them think they are special, and they think they deserve to live off the rest of society. You allow the countless marriage contracts in our nations to be broken, the families destroyed. You enabled all of it. You and your religion, which has no rational or supernatural basis, Are the problem culture is just the outworking of a religion what religion is running your countries you men of the West anyway Altner picks up the story like this quote we are still in the trench hardly 20 men to defend a section of trench almost 1600 feet long we split ourselves up along the trench so that there is a rifleman every 150 feet 20 men given the impossible task of holding back 2,000 Soviets The enemy attacks, smothering us in terrific infantry fire and driving us to the ground. When the firing suddenly stops, the Russians are already in the bushes in front of us. We've collected up the weapons of the dead and deserters and laid them loaded in front of us on the parapet. And I have got hold of a submachine gun. We fire like mad. The machine gun on the left combs through the bushes. It is all so absurd. We would like to throw the whole business aside and vanish, but nevertheless we still hold on. Our youthful trust has been shamefully abused and misled, but we still hope for a miracle that can no longer save us, for the war is undoubtedly lost. But I still have an inner voice that whispers, fight on. Keep fighting till you get a bullet. We shoot like robots, aiming and firing, and again the enemy withdraws, firing on our trench and pulling his dead and wounded back. If he just knew how thinly this trench is held. The machine gun has proven its worth. We would have lost the position if it had come to close quarter fighting, there is no doubt." Quote. As the battle for the city center progressed, the chaos in the German defense structure increased dramatically. An officer at Berlin Military Command, right in the heart of the capital's government district, remembers the disintegration of military structure like this, Our time was spent responding to crises that incessantly occurred. I would get reports from the divisions. I would get cries for help. I was constantly involved, solving logistical problems, receiving and compiling reports, and informing the divisions of new developments. General Viedling was always out visiting our units, going where things were worse to get his own view of each situation. What was worse was when I made my trip to the Fuhrer Bunker. By April 28th, there were hardly any buildings remaining, and even those that still stood were badly damaged and nearly unrecognizable. The whole area was in ruins from the bombings and artillery shelling. The shells exploded continuously with thundering detonations. When I went outside, the smoke from the burning city sliced through my nostrils and lungs like a jagged blade edge, and I was in the rear of the fighting. I thought of the men and teenagers fighting on the front line, choking from the noisome fumes and still resisting anyway. It was incredible. The roar of flames from burning buildings and the crunching sounds of falling walls were terrifying. Even General Veedling had to dash from doorway to doorway in short bursts in order to avoid rifle and machine gun fire. It was no big deal for me because I was 28, but for General Veedling, who was 57, running through the streets was very strenuous streets were full of both debris and dead bodies although the bodies were hardly recognizable as bodies the corpses were often under debris and everything was covered with a gray and red powder from the destruction of the buildings the stink of death was suffocating we had no way to dispose of the bodies or even to collect them because we were now under constant air and artillery bombardment and infantry fighting was now everywhere The city smelled like a battlefield, with the smell of the plaster and brick dust from disintegrating buildings of burning wood, of burning gunpowder, of gasoline, and of decomposing bodies. In these conditions, your body begins to adapt in curious ways. For instance, the loud roar of combat filled our days and our nights. We could usually detect from the sound what kind of weapons were being fired. Mortars sounded slow, artillery shells were a little faster, and heavy artillery was much faster. Of course, the detonation of heavy artillery was much louder than that of light artillery and mortars. We could also tell the direction of a shell, in which way it was coming from, by its sound. We could tell by the sound whether it would pass over our heads or hit in our area. After a while, our senses were automatically tuned to these sounds and our reactions became instinctive. We were human robots, automatically responding to the fighting, raging around us without even thinking about it, running solely on muscle memory. By now, the effort to supply us by air had practically ceased, since the east-west axis, the parade avenue through the Tier Garden, was now under constant mortar fire. The last plane that had landed did not make it off the ground again and was still sitting there, crippled by enemy fire. It was impossible to land ammunition for 50,000 men, let alone to parachute it in. The airdrops had produced only six tons of supplies. Above all, there was no way to distribute the supplies that did get in to the troops." When I went to the Führerbunker on the 28th, I saw Hitler. As he neared, I was shocked by his appearance. He was stooped, and his left arm was bent and shaking. Half of his face drooped as if he'd had a stroke, and his facial muscles on that side no longer worked. Both of his hands shook, and one eye was swollen. He looked like a very old man, like he was 76 instead of 56. His appearance was pitiful. Hitler was a caricature of what he had been. It was like an American cartoonist had deliberately drawn him as deteriorated as possible. Except this was in real life. He really was physically falling apart. I wondered how it was possible that in only six years, this idol of my whole generation could have become such a human wreck. It occurred to me then that Hitler was still the living symbol of Germany, but Germany as it was now... In the same six years, the flourishing, aspiring country had become a flaming pile of debris and ruin. Hitler refused to even consider breaking out of Berlin. General Wiedling later told me his suggestion that the garrison attempt to break out to the west was written off out of hand. And you should have seen the way he refused me, Wiedling said angrily. This man, whom I had seen remain calm under even the most adverse circumstances, was so furious that his voice quivered. He listened to my proposal and then he said, No, Viedling, I do not want to risk dying in the streets like a dog. Our soldiers had been dying in the streets of Europe for the past six years, like dogs, at his command. For him to imply now that such a death is somehow dishonorable is totally loathsome. Viedling was so angry that he was throwing caution to the wind. If someone had overheard and reported what he had just said to me, his life would have been in very great danger. But our men had been dying in the streets of Berlin every day and every night since we had arrived in the city, and they had died in the streets in other cities before Berlin. For Hitler to be so disrespectful towards the men who were sacrificing their own lives every day just to keep him alive one more day filled me with anger also. Many men who had served under my command had died since the beginning of the war. My own brother had died for Führer and fatherland. No wonder Wiedling was angry. We had both been in the war from the beginning. And we had both seen countless deaths in our almost six years of war. As soldiers, we had accepted death, even our own. As a natural part of our lives, we accepted it as a price we had to pay for a cause we thought just, at least in the beginning. We were perhaps only now, at the last possible moment, beginning to see clearly what kind of men we had been following. End quote. Later on the afternoon of April 28th, an Axis soldier's only thought was to go to sleep. His words are poignant. So I'll quote them for you, quote, I just want to sleep, sleep, and suddenly wake up to discover that it was all nothing but a bad dream, that there was no war, that there are no ruins, no dead and ripped apart bodies, but that there is peace and the sun shines and life pulses without the threat of coming to an end at any and every moment. But this is only wishful thinking. We are condemned to death and do not know why, nor do we know why we are not allowed to live, end. quote, A few blocks away, in broad daylight, amid the crumbling rubble and bullet-ridden walls of the city's shattered buildings, the rapes continued. One woman thought she was safe when all of a sudden a rifle butt hammered on her apartment door. When her roommate opened the door, two hulking, gray-haired men stepped into the living room. I'll let the victim describe what happened next. One of them grabs hold of me and shoves me into the front room, pushing an old woman out of the way. The one shoving me is an older man with gray stubble reeking of brandy and horses. He carefully closes the door behind him and, not finding a key, slides the wing chair against the door. He seems not to even see his prey so that when he strikes, she is all the more startled as he knocks her onto the bedstead. Eyes closed, teeth clenched. There's no sound. Only an involuntary grinding of teeth when my underclothes are ripped apart. The last untorn ones I had. Suddenly his finger is on my mouth, stinking of horse and tobacco. I open my eyes, a stranger's hands expertly pulling apart my jaws, eye to eye. Then, with great deliberation, he drops a gob of gathered spit into my mouth. I'm numb, not with disgust, only cold. My spine is frozen. icy, dizzy shivers around the back of my head. I feel myself gliding and falling down, down through the pillows and the floorboards. So that's what it means to sink into the ground. Once more eye to eye, the stranger's lip open, yellow teeth, one in front half broken off. The corners of the mouth lift. Tiny wrinkles radiate from the corners of his eyes. The man is smiling. Before leaving, he fishes something out of his pants pocket thumps it down on the nightstand without a word, pulls the chair aside and slams the door behind him, a crumpled pack of Russian cigarettes, only a few left, my pay. I stand up, dizzy and nauseated. My ragged clothes tumble to my feet. I stagger through the hall, past the sobbing widow, into the bathroom. I throw up, my face green in the mirror, my vomit in the basin. I sit on the edge of the bathtub without daring to flush since I'm still gagging and there's so little water left in the bucket. Damn this to hell, I say it out loud. Then I make up my mind, no question about it. I have to find a single wolf to keep away the pack. An officer, as high-ranking as possible. A commander, a general, whatever I can manage, end quote. Later that same day, the anonymous eyewitness did find an officer to protect her. Many women did that, offering themselves to one higher-ranking man so he could provide protection from the common soldiers running through the streets like wild animals, searching for flesh. And so... In this one small terrible tragedy, we empirically see the foundation of all political order. What was it Carl Schmitt said? No order, no legitimacy, and no legality can exist without protection and obedience. The protecto ergo obligo is the caquito ergo sum of the state. A political theory which does not systematically understand this sentence remains perpetually inadequate. Hobbes designated this as the true purpose of his Leviathan. To instill in man, once again, the mutual relation between protection and obedience, human nature, as well as the divinity itself, demands its total and complete observation, End quote. Now compare this with the famed political theorist Kenneth Waltz, who writes in his theory of international politics, quote, "...among the depressing features of international political studies is the small gain in explanatory power that has come from the large amount of work done in recent decades. Nothing seems to accumulate, not even criticism. Instead, the same sorts of summary and superficial criticisms were made over and over again, and the same sort of errors are repeated." End quote. Now we know where the source of this worthlessness of the vast majority of the work, the men drawing $100,000 checks in the political science departments across the length and breadth of North America have stumbled. They stumbled precisely at the first principles, precisely and completely where Schmidt and Hobbes said they would stumble, at protection and therefore obligation. Anyway, by this time, Soviet troops and equipment were overflowing the streets of Berlin. They were just everywhere. Keep in mind, Russian troops, which numbered about 1.5 million, outnumbered Axis troops by about 15 to 1. At any given time in the battle for the actual city of Berlin, most historians agree there were around 90,000 troops fighting for the Axis. But because the Reich was decombusting, no one knows for sure. However, I think the usually reported numbers of German combat soldiers are low, and the reason I think that is, admittedly, anecdotal. Throughout the primary sources, you repeatedly read about SS men going door-to-door and cellar-to-cellar and making anyone who can walk and pull a trigger join the fight. They hunted down deserters the way falcons hunt rabbits. Almost all the sources mention this phenomenon. Consequently, I believe there were probably a couple tens of thousands more Axis men under arms than most historians recount, but that's just my opinion. Moreover, no one knows or ever will know for sure. By the afternoon, most of the Axis soldiers were overwhelmed by the constant combat. One teen, who had been fighting for days, finally stopped for a rest and who reflected on his short life. Quote, I feel tired and washed out. The dull pressure in my head prevents me from thinking clearly even killing the heavy thoughts that descend upon us like the shadows of the night in the quiet hours. Our uniforms are gray and so are our forebodings about a future that gives us not a glimmer of hope. An officer rouses us up and organizes us into combat teams with total strangers. Now there is a new task to perform, as pointless as all the others, as they cannot possibly make any difference to the eventual outcome of this war. Amid this unwilling mass, everyone is in it for himself alone, leaving aside all thoughts and feelings to make things as easy as possible for oneself, thinking about neither the future nor the present. Just swimming in the mass, being simply a tiny wheel without a purpose of its own. We are pawns in a losing chess match, sent first one way and then another, in a game everyone knows we are destined to lose, End quote. Put yourself in their shoes, you wake from a concrete bed covered in dirt and dust for a blanket. The Luftwaffe captain, who has never led infantry soldiers, is forming you into a combat team with total strangers. You've never met any of these people in your life. The Air Force officer tells you your combat group has been tasked with retaking the streets around Richard Wagner Street, but the only way to get there safely is through the pitch blackness of the subway tunnels. Down into the tiled walled subway station you go, deep into the ground a sort of anti-regeneration, a second death instead of a second birth. There's no electricity, everything has been looted, even the electrical outlets and copper wiring is just dark and you are transformed into a human mole you follow the man in front of you using the train cable as a guide desperate not to make any noise but with every step the gravel ballast of the train track betrays your presence sends alarm bells ringing through the enemy's nervous system sends his pointer finger caressing the trigger of his submachine gun your dumbfounded face peers into the inky blackness And you can't even see your hand in front of your own face. Every sound echoes and surreally bounces across the miles-long tunnel. You walk, if you can call it that. It's more like frightened stumbling. You stumble along desperately hoping for daylight, longing to be out of this pit. Then, all of a sudden, an explosion rings out in the sound-magnifying tunnel. There are shots all around you. You feel stinging flecks of tile and mortar embed in the tender tissue of your neck and cheeks. You throw yourself into the darkness, an Olympic swimmer diving into a pool. Suddenly the gravel finds you and hits you, hammering the air out of your lungs. Rifle rounds hit the gravel around you. You can feel the shots move past you, hear the zing snap of the rounds passing near your ear. You close your eyes and then the shooting is over. A few yards ahead of you, you find another German unit guarding the exit from the subway station. They had mistaken you for Russians. Their mistake cost you four men dead and two men wounded. You take the wounded to the nearest medical station and leave the dead. Finally, you have reached sunlight. Although, because of the omnipresent black cloud hanging over the smoldering city, there is actually little sunlight peering through the opaque fumes. But it's still better than the vast blackness of the subway, where your mind projects monsters and demons waiting around every bin. Then you make your way to Richard Wagner Street, and engage the veterans of Zhukov's army in house-to-house fighting, such as the way the Reich tumbled down, drowning in the vast black darkness in vats of crimson blood. Now the primary objective of the Soviet army was the Reichstag, The problem was, in order to physically get to the Reichstag, the Russians had to cross the Spree River, which meant crossing a bridge. Of course, the hardcore German veterans defending the government district were no fools. They understood right where the Russian thrust would be coming, to the bridge. Any idiot could see it. That's where Sergeant Major Vili Rogman was waiting, at the other end of the main bridge, directly in the path of the Soviet line of advance. In the late afternoon, the Russians came on. This time, for once, there was no artillery bombardment because the Russians were trying to utilize the element of surprise. There was no surprise. Vili and his SS veterans were waiting to cut down the Russians with pre-planned fields of fire. It was a bloodbath. Villy describes it like this, There was a barricade on our side of the bridge where we manned a defensive position. In the early evening, two Russian divisions attempted to storm the bridge. The machine guns of our two companies, which had been reinforced by sailors, hacked away with steady fire. On their first attempt, the infantry stuck on the barbed wire barricade at the end of the bridge. Absurdly, the dying Russians resembled dangling Christmas tree ornaments entangled in the mesh-like barbed wire. I was directing mortar fire to hail down on the bridge and my friend was using his guns to send shells ricocheting like pinballs across it. They tried to withdraw the Russians, but none got away, their bodies disintegrating from the mortar and shell fire. The blast hurled Soviet bodies in the river, which gobbled them up forever. The fish ate good that day. Now bulldozer tanks pushed onto the bridge, shoving aside the wounded and dying as they came on, crushing their heads like popping pimples, turning their bodies into pasta-infused marinara. Nothing could stop the belching metal beast, and soon they had shoved aside our anti-tank barrier. It wasn't much of an anti-tank barrier, but then we directed fire on the bulldozer tanks from the nearest flak tower, and their flaming hulks blocked the bridge from further tank assaults. Fresh infantry stormed the bridge and were able to form a small bridgehead on our side. Now the officials from the Ministry of the Interior went to action frantically pouring fire from their windows with their old MG-34s. They defended their building like a fortress because they knew they would be murdered if they were captured alive. Unfortunately, we had weakly defended the diplomatic quarter because we wanted to respect the neutrality of other nations. The Russians didn't have this weakness, and they stormed through this weakness into our front line like a bursting dam. One minute there were no Russians, the next minute they were everywhere, End quote. Later on, a German sapper team... Attempted to blow up the bridge. Villy and his men were defending, but they only succeeded in destroying half the bridge on one side. In other words, the bridge was still passable. A few hundred feet away, Helmut Altner was thrust into battle underground, inside the broken subway system. On the afternoon of April 28th, this is what happened to him. We are split into individual combat teams to try to get past the enemy. Some Hitler Youth Combat Teams, specially trained for underground fighting, join us. We jump back down on the tracks and advance slowly, keeping press close to the walls. The U-Bahn line has some gentle curves, behind any of which the enemy could be lurking. We advance step by step. A ventilation shaft allows us a pause, and the battle from the streets above sounds like distant thunder and takes our breath away. It does not seem to be all that far off. We're right under the combatants. We go on slowly, then the Russians fire, and it comes as a relief from the uncertainty. Now we know where we stand. They are down there with us, two armies of rats clawing one another in the darkness. I've thrown myself to the ground and put my head against the cool rail that's vibrating as if a train were approaching. A bright flash rips through the darkness, and an explosion echoes back a thousand times from the walls, almost shattering our eardrums. Then there is another explosion, in a new flash of bright light, in which figures can be seen running forward. We run forward as if drawn by a gigantic magnet, firing in the darkness, stumbling and falling over dead and wounded. Up ahead, a Hurrah! rings out from young throats high pitched and hoarse. We rush forward, firing, driven by a blind urge to kill and not be killed ourselves. Shots are coming from a U bond tunnel on the left and it's hitting the wall we run past under withering fire I stumble, fall and crawl along the ground out of the line of fire suddenly there is another flash and one can see figures running forward for an instant the rails and cables on the walls and Hitler Youth who had just fired a Panzerfaust into the adjoining tunnel. Then it is suddenly dark again. A torch flashes for a second and one can see dark figures lying between the rails. Then I run on thrusting forward and firing like mad into the darkness in front of me. Then the gun stops the magazine empty as is the second one that I used up just before we stumble over more and more dead many of them Hitler youth who had previously been up in the lead with their Waffen SS men then another ventilation shaft appears the firing is going on behind us without respite we do not know if we are running straight into the hands of the enemy or whether he's only attacking from a side tunnel at last, we fight our way to a new station. One can hardly imagine that life once pulsed through these dead tunnels at its fastest. That brightly colored trains used to tear along disgorging thousands of people at these stations and taking on more into their carriages. One certainly cannot imagine that there is now anything other than this constant race with death, but better to fight above ground in the light and sunshine when one can see one's fate in the form of giant tanks in the enemy than under here in the city's burial chambers, which have now truly become graves for those line between the railway tracks and the stations we feel our way forward again this darkness has no end to it we go along the walls like shadows of the night worrying about the next incident that will surely befall us it's not quieted down Behind us comes a thundering like a storm roaring and frightening. And then it breaks out again from the darkness up ahead. One can see the muzzle flashes of weapons from which destruction is lashing out in all its forms. We charge forward, fall, pull ourselves up again, lie down behind the dead and wounded who provide the only cover and fire into the night in front of us. The fighting is hard and horrible. There's another loud bang behind us, and the sound comes down the tunnel like a wave, almost threatening to knock us over. A strong blast streaks past, shaking our helmets. Has the enemy blown up the stretch behind us? Is he going to blow it up in front of us? The ventilation shaft above us has been torn open. One of the boys says that the Russians have been firing at the street with their tanks during the past few days and have ripped open the tunnel roof, exterminators looking for scurrying mice. We go farther down the tunnel. Berlin has now become a torn, flaming, uncoordinated object. The enemy is still in the Tiergarten, trying to get into the government quarter, but there are still German troops at the zoo like an island precariously hanging together in a mighty flood. The firing does not stop. Our combat team spreads out even farther apart and partly holds back. The tunnel has fallen in, so we have to make our way carefully over a maze of torn concrete and twisted rails, collapsed beams and electricity cables, constantly followed and driven on by the enemy fire, which seems to be coming from all directions. After the negotiation of each destroyed and demolished section, we vanish underground again. I have no idea how late it is, having lost all sense of time, and am surprised to be still alive. Our ranks have become much thinner, but the Hitler Youths are still fighting like the devil, being driven on ceaselessly by their Waffen-SS leaders. By this time, whole combat teams of Germans and Russians have been cut off in various sections by demolition and then destroyed. Many of them were Hitler Youths trained at tank hunting teams and then committed underground. At last there is a big hole in the roof to the street above us and heavy fire crashes down on the stones and it makes the traverse unthinkable. The boys come up from behind with shocked white faces, charging forward. The enemy is firing Panzerfausts down through the ventilation shafts, blowing up the stretch behind us so that we are trapped and do not know how to get out. Then someone jumps over the maze of blown up roofing. That half fills the shaft and vanishes unharmed into the half shattered continuation of the tunnel despite the hail of fire then i too suddenly jump up ignoring the sound of shots striking all around me falling and rolling forward scrambling with bloody hands and clutching my weapon until it hurts and then i am over i roll into the passage and lie down on the rails wanting to rest only to rest one by one the others leap forward we go on leaving everything behind us like a nightmare suddenly voices call out ahead of us They echo through the caverns. We call back and go on faster. They are Germans. We have reached an oasis of safety in a desert of pain. We sit down and rest. Many of our battle group are buried in the tunnels we have just passed through. There are a few of us left. In his helmet, Altner reflected on the hopelessness of his situation back in the Fuhrer bunker. Hitler's secretary, Martin Bormann, and the radical Nazi general, Wilhelm Bergdorf, were engaged in a heated argument. Bergdorf was shouting at Bormann that he was regarded as a traitor to the German people because of his unquestioning obedience to Hitler. And now Bergdorf realized, at the last minute, the corruption of the Nazi elite. General Krebs tried to quiet Bergdorf. After all, Hitler was just a few feet away from the men, but it was too late for social niceties. Bergdorf screamed with the passion of a lover who suddenly realizes his wife has been unfaithful for years. Leave me alone, Krebs! Someone has to say all this. Young officers went to their deaths by the hundreds of thousands. And for what? He was asking himself. The answer was neither for the fatherland nor for the future. Only now did he realize that they died for you! Millions of innocent human beings were sacrificed while you, the leaders of the party, enriched yourselves with the wealth of the people. You lived it up, amassed immense riches, stole junker estates, built palaces, indulged in luxury, deceived and oppressed the people. You trampled our ideals into the mud, our morals, our belief, our soul. For you a human being was only a tool. For your unquenchable hunger for power you destroyed our centuries-old culture and the German folk. this is your terrible burden of guilt End quote after Bergdorf's outburst, there was silence in the bunker for a minute or two. then the leaders simply started drinking again, drowning their regrets in liquor but Bergdorf couldn't drown his own problems in alcohol for him the bitterness of his awakening. Burn more than Tennessee moonshine. And so he killed himself a few days later, just another suicide among tens or even hundreds of thousands. There would be many more before this battle was over. And that's another one of the books for me. Once again, I want to thank everybody who shares the show on social media and everybody who tells a friend about it. It really helps us a lot. But now I have to address yet another of the endless emails I got. You know, I don't know why you guys keep sending me these emails that are designed to get me in trouble with the censors who don't exist, but we all know do exist. Anyway, Charlie from Evansville, Indiana, wrote to me and told me in minute detail that what this country needs is to get back to the Constitution. Friends, what did Tolkien, Lord of Poets, say to this same question? In his Cimmerillion, he said it wasn't the land that made heaven holy, but the people who inhabited heaven that which made it sacred. What did Tolkien mean? He means it's the people who make a Constitution work, not the paper. What did Christ say? Don't cast your pearls before swine. For 2000 years our fathers knew this truth. It's the people that make the government strong, not the government that make the people strong. Today everything is backwards our policymakers. Just think about that name, policymakers. In a democracy, we shouldn't need policymakers because the people themselves sit policy. Instead, we should have policy enactors blindly following what the people command them to do in reverential service to the will of the people. But you laugh when I said that because you know we don't have anything like that in the West today. Anyway, I want all of you to hear the words of your God, Christ, and your poet, Tolkien, and your podcast host, me. It's not the Constitution that makes a people good. It's a good people that make a Constitution. That's why Benjamin Franklin said America would be a republic if the people could keep it because he knew the government was only as good as the people who made it. Again, I quote Christ, not because you believe his words, I'm not a fool, but because your fathers did when they made the Constitution in the first place. He said, by their fruits, you will know them what are your fruits charlie do you buy dope that leads to small mexican towns being dominated by drug lords do you turn your sisters into whores every night on Pornhub? do you break your sacred vow to stay committed to your spouse do you pay your debts or better yet do you avoid debt in the first place do you keep your word do you steal do you lie do you break faith mistreat the trust of friends and how about you listener Let me be a second Solon and give you the truth, the medicine you do not want to hear. If you were good enough, the Constitution would be better than it is today. More holy, more generous, more merciful. You'd have a better Constitution. It's you. Ultimately, the problem is you. Look in the mirror because you are what makes the Constitution work or fail. You're what makes it strong or weak. And so I'll end this show with a quote from the poem Fortress. Build the moat today, because tomorrow the enemy comes. He always comes. He's been coming since the day he slew Abel. He's coming again. There never was an escape, and there never will be. Build the moat yesterday. Build it deep. Build it wide. Build it firm, because the enemy is always at the gate, always beating at the door of the ark. Don't let him cross. Keep on your guard. Build the moat yesterday. When your teacher says you're evil, don't let him cross the moat. When the anonymous censor oppresses you, build your moat deeper. When the commissar denigrates you in the meeting, hear with your ears, but not with your heart. Because once the censor and the teacher and the commissar get in your heart and your mind, then it is already too late. The first moat and the first fortress is around your mind, but more than this, it's around your heart. Sometimes the enemy gets in, And he smashes up the place. And he upturns the china. He rapes and he destroys. Makes the water stop running. Makes the electricity stop humming. Makes the tears start flowing. When that happens, build the moat again like our father Tolkien, like our father Shakespeare, like our father Aesop, like our father El Cid, like our father Constantine, like our father Beowulf, like our father Virgil and our father Christ, father Homer, father Abraham, father Noah and father Adam. They were builders and so you can be my little carpenters. The enemy has always been at the gate and always will be at the gate, but he doesn't have to be in your mind. You're the one who lets him into your heart. And once again, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.